Take your Bibles out and turn with me back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're joining us today for the first time, uh, you'll notice from the sermon notes page in your bulletin this morning that we're up to the 19th message. Uh, and we are in chapter 5 this morning, beginning in verse 33 and going down through verse 37, looking at the subject matter, your, let your word be your bond. Let your word be your bond. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I guess they didn't have Miss Claire all back then, right? Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Lord, thank you for these very practical words that we read in the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you talk about subject matters that touch us in everyday life, and this is certainly one of those. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted about the use of our words. Do we truly use our words to bless you and to bless others? Are we men and women of integrity and character? And do our words even reflect that? Lord, may it be so. May we be a people that the world would look at us and say they are indeed different. And may it be to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Han von Meegeren was a Dutch artist who felt unappreciated by the art critics and the art world of his day. He set out to trick the critics with a scheme that would satisfy his ego, if only to himself, because he knew that his scheme could never become public. He would be in deep trouble. He forged some of the most famous paintings of the day. The art world was discussing whether or not the great painter uh, Johann Vermeer had painted a series of biblical scenes. Megaran jumped on this opportunity to forge one of Vermeer's works entitled Supper at Emmaus. With meticulous detail, Megaran copied everything about Vermeer's original, even paying attention to cracks and hardness in the painting that had occurred over time. He was so good at his forged copies that the art world was fooled. He began making additional copies and selling them as originals by Vermeer. It's estimated that in today's figures, Megaran made off with somewhere around $30 million. His lie caught up with him, however, when in the late 1930s or perhaps early 40s, he sold one of the paintings to a prominent member of the Nazi party in Germany. 
When the war was over, allies considered Megrin a conspirator for having sold a national treasure to the enemy. He was arrested on May 29, 1945, and under Dutch law at the time, he could put, be put to death for his crime of treason. On November 12, 1947, the Dutch government officially charged him with falsification and fraud. Well, at this point, obviously, Megrin had to come clean. In fact, in a highly publicized trial, he had to paint one of his forgeries in the presence of authorities to prove what he had been doing all along. He escaped with a light sentence of only one year in prison, but he died of a heart attack just two months after his trial. Now, folks, there's a tremendous lesson in all of that, and that, that lesson, I think, is be sure your sins will find you out. Lies are discovered sooner or later. Now in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the seriousness of our words. Not just our actions, but even in our words, Christians are to be radically different from the world. Remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at that passage out of Romans 12 where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God which is your spiritual act of worship and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The world ought to be able to look at us even in our everyday lives and our communications with one another and they ought to be able to say there is a difference with those people. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says we are a peculiar people. We are to live as aliens who are just pilgrims we're passing through. Even with our words we ought to be reflecting that to a lost and dying world. In the world, it's almost come to be expected that lies and half-truths are going to be told. Being in an election year as we're in, it's all too common to see how the candidates on both sides for the highest office in the land do things that sometimes would appear to us to be skirting the very edges of the truth. But as Christians, we are to clearly understand that our word is to be our bond. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're to be so honest in all of our dealings with people and in our speech that we don't even need to attach special vows or promises to what we say because people will know automatically that our words are trustworthy and honest. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Let's see how that gets fleshed out in the text. First of all, if you're taking notes, I want you to understand the teaching in the Old Testament. The teaching in the Old Testament. In verse 33, Jesus said, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely. Now, it's important at this point, I think, to understand that the Jews in the time of Jesus and previous to that, leading up to the first century, as they were reading their Old Testament, the Old Testament did not forbid all vows. 
In fact, there were even certain circumstances in which vows were not only encouraged, but even commanded. Rather than quoting one specific commandment in the Old Testament, what Jesus is doing here is summarizing a number of Old Testament verses. He's conflating a number of them together in sort of a blanket style summary statement. It's believed some of the verses that he might be referring to would be, for instance, Exodus 27, one of the Ten Commandments. It's the third commandment. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And a little later on in the message today, we'll see how in some of their vows they were taking God's name in vain. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, When a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. Deuteronomy 6.13 said, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Deuteronomy 23.21 said, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not be slack to pay it. Now what was God's purpose in the Mosaic law? in regulating vows. The answer undoubtedly is that its intent was to place a bridle upon man's propensity to lie. You see folks, as a part of man's fallen sinful condition, his tongue is oftentimes full of lies and deceit. And because of man's propensity to lie, they had developed ways of offering vows when they wanted to appear truthful. Now to show you how this had gotten out of hand by Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that some vows were binding and other vows were not. For instance, if you took an oath by the temple, that was a vow that was not binding. But if you took a vow by the gold of the temple, that vow was binding. If you took an oath by the altar, you didn't need to keep that vow. But if you took an oath by the gift that was on the altar, then that was a vow that was absolutely binding. If you swore by Jerusalem, you were not bound. But if you swore while facing Jerusalem, you were bound. Well, the Mishnah. The oral tradition and teaching of the rabbis devotes one whole section to oaths. The rabbis discussed when oaths were binding and when they were not. Anything obviously that involved God's name was binding. But as I've already pointed out, swearing by other things was allowed, whether by your own head or by Jerusalem or, or some object. Now the whole system was abused as you can only imagine. It degenerated into a form of teaching you when you could lie and when you couldn't. It's kind of like when we were growing up. Now I don't know if the kids still do this today. But remember when you were growing up and kids would tell lies. And you'd go back and you'd confront somebody or be confronted. And, and what would you say? You'd say, yeah I made that promise to you but I had my fingers crossed you remember that were you ever guilty of that I won't ask you to raise your hand 
But that's sort of how this whole system had become. But I do want you to understand, however, that in the Old Testament, if properly understood, vows were sometimes allowed. But any honest reading of the Mosaic Law would make it clear that the use of vows was to be reserved for only the most solemn of occasions. Even God himself made vows on certain occasions. In Genesis 22, you remember the, the, the uh, circumstances in Genesis 22. God had commanded Abraham to take Isaac, his son, up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And that's what Abraham did. And when Abraham got up there and had Isaac laid out on the altar and he was about to sacrifice his son, God stopped him. And you'll remember God provided instead a, a, uh, a lamb in the thicket, or a, a ram. And he sacrificed that ram instead. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, because you've done this, because you've not even spared your own son from me, you were willing to offer him as a sacrifice. God went on to say, because of that, Abraham, by my name, I am swearing to you, Abraham, that I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven above. As the writer of Hebrews explains, since God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so occasions in the Old Testament when even God offered an oath. Now obviously the Lord's promises made with an oath were no more truthful or binding than any other time that he spoke because all of God's words are holy and true. It's not that God makes an oath because he could not otherwise be trusted, but because he wishes to impress upon men a special importance or urgency related to whatever promise he was making. It was for the sake of man and as an assurance to man that he made an oath. Abraham also made his servant Eleazar uh, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that he would go and find a wife for Isaac from among uh, his own people, from Abraham's own people. He made Eliezer swear by God that Eliezer would not go among the Canaanites and get a wife for, for Isaac. King David, a man that the Bible says was someone after his own heart, he made a covenant with Jonathan. And as he made that covenant with Jonathan, the Bible says in Psalm 132, 2, that he swore to the Lord and vowed a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. The book of Hebrews describes oaths. It says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Hebrews 6.16 the name, or, or the name of something or someone greater than the person making the oath is called upon to give a greater credibility to what is, is said. So again, in the Old Testament, we see God making oaths. We see Abraham. We see King David. We see others. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the prince of preachers of a, of a past gone day, says the conclusion we can come to based upon Scripture is that while oath-taking must be restricted, there are certain solemn, vital occasions when it is right, when it's not only legitimate, but actually adds a solemnity and an authority which nothing else can give. Well, such was the teaching in the Old Testament. But again, what I want you to see that was important in Jewish life that Jesus is going to address is how they had become so indiscriminate and so casual and even flippant in just an everyday conversation and situations when they didn't even need to make vows. They were making vows and promises in the name of God in those situations. And like so many other things we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, it had really gotten out of hand with the oral traditions of the rabbis. Attaching all sorts of little nuances to it. Well, the second thing I want you to see this morning is the teaching of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about all this? He said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than that comes from evil or the evil one. Now due to the abuse of vows, notice what Jesus says to his followers. He says, make no oath at all. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Christ calls, he calls his disciples to such radical truthfulness unlike anything that we see in the world, that no one would even question our words or our promises because they would see that we are men and women of character and integrity. Christ is calling us to be such men and women of truth and people of our word that when we speak, we speak only the truth. No promises, no vows have to be attached to what we say. Our yes means yes and our no means no. Commentator William Hendrickson says it well. He says what we have here is the condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression or to spice daily conversation. Over against that evil, Jesus commends simple truthfulness in thought. Why? Because uh, truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. Now again, remember they had also allowed oaths by just about anything with the exception of God himself or God's name. But Jesus says don't make an oath by heaven. Why? Because it's the throne of God. Don't make an oath by earth. Why? Because the earth is his footstool. Don't make an oath by Jerusalem. Why? Because it's the city of the great king. Furthermore, don't even make an oath by your own head. Why? Because you can't make one hair white or black. In other words, you have such little control over the circumstances even in your very own life. 
Jesus' point is that the entire creation is God's. And so if you make an oath and call upon any part of God's creation in that oath, you have to refer to Him because He's the creator and the sustainer of it all. And so in some way or another, you're still involving God's name. Listen to Jesus' words on this in Matthew 23. He, he was again addressing the rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes. He said, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Is it any wonder Jesus got in trouble with them? You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Sounds like exactly what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Dr. Kent Hughes says here. The need for oath-taking and swearing comes from the fact that we earthlings are liars. Whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily otherwise overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my line, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. As Kent Hughes goes on to say, oaths really cheapen the rest of our language. The point is, be truthful in all you say. And an oath which is designed to add power to your words is not even needed because everybody knows that your words carry the power of truthfulness without anything having to be added to them. John Stott says, Christians should say what they mean and mean what they say. Our unadorned word should be enough. A simple yes or no. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking in your minds. Because, see, some of you have gotten that gracious little invitation in the mail from the county courthouse to come on such and such date and serve on jury duty. And when you get down there on jury duty, you're going to have to swear an oath. And if you're in a trial, you're going to witness 
witnesses who come to the witness stand. Or maybe some of you have even been a witness in a trial before. And both the prosecution and the defense is going to parade up different witnesses and they're going to come up there and before they take the witness stand, a clerk is going to hold a big old black Bible out to them and say, you need to put one hand on this Bible, raise the other hand and say, I swear uh, by God to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help me God the question in your mind now is should I do this or should I refuse our Anabaptist forefathers of the 16th century said you need to refuse now remember you had the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers. The magisterial reformers are the ones that get the most press. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. They're the magisterial reformers. Then there were the radical reformers. The Anabaptists were among them, our forefathers. A-N-A Baptist. Anabaptist just means they, they were the rebaptizers. It was a term of derision because they insisted upon believers' baptism. And the Anabaptists said, don't take such an oath. Don't do it. The Quakers, even down to the current day, also say, don't do it. In fact, George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, provided his famous statement to the judges at Lancaster who sentenced him to prison for refusing to swear over a Bible that he would tell the truth. George Fox said, You have given me a book here to kiss and to swear upon, and this book which you have given me to kiss says in Psalm 2, Kiss the Son. And the son says in this book, swear not at all. I say, therefore, as the book says, and yet, ye, and yet ye imprison me. How chance you do not also imprison the book for saying so. Now today because of George Fox and other conscientious objectors, thankfully the Supreme Court has given you and me a pass on religious grounds if you don't want to take this oath. I'm glad they've done that. But the question is, are they right in interpreting Jesus' words this way? Now much to your surprise, maybe... I'm going to suggest to you that I don't necessarily agree with the Anabaptists and the Quakers on this. I think they've missed the context. It's the same thing as you read on in the Sermon on the Mount. The next section we come to, the, the modern day descendants of the Anabaptists and Quakers won't go to war for any reason whatsoever. I think in all of this they miss the context. Now, if it's their conviction of conscience or it's your conviction of conscience, I'm not going to argue with you at all. And again, I'm glad courts have made such an allowance. 
But I think they largely miss the point in what Jesus is saying. Jesus is condemning the way that in normal, everyday conversation, people had begun to use oaths in flippant, casual ways. And he's condemning the way that the religious leaders had promoted this and added all of their little ridiculous nuances to it, such as I mentioned before. That's what Jesus is addressing. He said he'd not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Remember, the law had encouraged oaths in situations of huge gravity. Let me give you another situation of huge gravity. And it ties in with what we talked about last week. Periodically in the course of a year, either myself or one of the other ministers, we will be standing down here and those doors will open and a beautiful bride will come down this aisle and the groom will be standing beside me and he will take his place beside her and her father will give her away and after some words of introduction we will all go back up on the platform and I will say some words and somewhere in the ceremony they will make oaths to one another and I realize their oaths are usually just a simple I do or I will but the whole ceremony usually the oaths are surrounded by we invoke God in those oaths in some way should we not do that should we not put our hand on the Bible before we take the witness stand in the court of law Again, I don't think Jesus is addressing those scenarios. Uh, again, it should be unnecessary for a Christian to even need to do that, but I don't see objections to it. However, let me say that I also disagree with those who take my position on this and use Jesus in Matthew 26 as an example. Those who take my position that there are certain situations that's okay, say in Matthew 26, Jesus was standing before Caiaphas. And, and the scripture says there, Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you said so, but I tell you from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They'll say it's important to note that even Jesus himself swore an oath to Caiaphas. However, even though I agree with their conclusion, I disagree with their example because you'll notice from a simple reading of the text, it wasn't Jesus swearing the oath. It was Caiaphas. So again, I agree with their point. I just disagree with their example in this. One other case in point that will suffice to show you I th that I think, I, I don't believe Jesus' words here forbid vows under certain conditions. I give you the example of the Apostle Paul. And I'm just going to mention two verses. Romans chapter 1 verses 9 through 10, excuse me, three verses, 9 through 10 in Romans and 2 Corinthians 1, 23. In Romans 1, Paul says, now, now folks remember, 
These are words by the Apostle Paul, but I hope you also believe that these are the inerrant, infallible words of God. I hope you believe that God's Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul. And he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. He calls upon God. God is my witness. And then in 2 Corinthians 1 he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And so in both cases, Paul calls upon God to be his witness as to the truthfulness of his words. Is he in violation of what Jesus taught? No, what's the point Jesus was making? It's the way they had started picking up on making vows in everyday conversation. And turning it into such a charade and such a sham. That's what Jesus was forbidding. God calls for truthfulness though and if we are truthful we don't need to attach certain things to our words. I think Jesus was just addressing everyday conversation. Now the psalmist in describing the kind of person who may enter God's holy presence makes clear that one mandatory requirement that would be that a person would be one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Psalm 15. In other words, his word is even more important than his own welfare. That's what God's after. In Psalm 51.6, King David said of God, You desire truth in the innermost being. In Proverbs 6, the Bible says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And then Revelation 21.8 says... But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wow. You hear what John is saying there? As God is speaking to John and John's writing God's words, God is pointing out that if lying, if a lack of truthfulness is just a normal part of somebody's life, what is that an indication of? That's probably an indication they've never been born again to begin with. Because as Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, it's what's in the heart that ends up coming out in the lips. And so if what comes out in your lips is dishonesty and lies, what does it reveal? It reveals a bad heart. In closing, I want to ask you to turn with me over to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. 
In James chapter 3, in a very well-known uh, text on the tongue, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. The average human tongue is four ounces. And this four ounces can corrupt somebody's entire life. And that's James' point here in using a little brittle in a horse's mouth or a little rudder on a great big ship. It's the case of something small directing something much larger that it's attached to. Same thing with our tongue. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. What's his point? No human being can, but who can? God can. He says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree my brothers bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt, can a salt pond produce fresh water. Consistency in nature, in all of God's creation. What do we see woven into creation? We see God's beauty and a consistency. But when it comes to our tongue, what do we find? That it's a restless evil. Something small, controlling something big, and sometimes wrecking your life. Four ounces can wreck your life. Four ounces can wreck a career. Four ounces can sever a friendship. The importance, the importance of the tongue and truthfulness. Truthfulness. Jesus is saying to those in his audience who were just throwing away, throwing around rather, these oaths in such a flippant, careless manner and calling on God and God's name and Jerusalem and, and on and, and the temple and the altar and the gifts and on and on and on. They were going as they would just talk to one another in everyday conversation and, and just every other phrase almost they would use, they would throw around these little oaths. When they wanted to say to somebody, now what I'm about to tell you now, 
it's, it's real. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating now. I'm not embellishing. I'm not lying now. And so they would constantly throw in these little sayings. And Jesus said, stop it. Now again, I realize we don't use oaths that way today. But the application is the same. Truthfulness in your language. Being men and women of integrity. That we don't even need to say to our friends. Now listen up to me on this one because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. We don't even need to say that because they would say... You're a man of integrity. You're always honest. Does that describe you? Or are you known for lies and deceit and exaggeration? And maybe even in your business life, your colleagues say, Well, I'm not sure. I can take his word for it or her word for it. Based on my experience with them, I'm not sure. If that's true of anybody in here, you need to say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. May my words in every situation, whether I'm talking to somebody privately in a room and it's just me and that one other person, whether I'm in a room with a group of people or whether I'm in an audience, regardless of what I say, my words are going to be honest and true. And people will know it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's integrity. That's integrity. I hear some of you old-timers tell stories of days that I long for. Those days are gone, I realize it. But when you would strike deals with people and your word was your bond, you didn't need a contract because whatever you told somebody, you would do, and whatever they told you, they would do. Boy, don't you wish it could be that way today. Well, Jesus is saying in the body of Christ... That's how we're to be. The world may not be like that, but ladies and gentlemen, this is an area where you and I can be a witness to the world. Be truthful. Be honest. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, please. And as you do so, again, remember what James says. Nobody can contain the tongue on the human level. But what's the answer? God can. God can do the impossible. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your language? Do you have a problem with honesty? Do you even have to stop in certain situations because you have a problem with honesty? When you're telling the truth, you have to add some qualifier to it that, oh, in this instance, I'm telling the truth. 
that ought to be a witness to you that something's wrong with your language. Could it be that there are people you need to go to even this week and get right with them? Maybe this past week your words have been dishonest with somebody. And you're convicted of that now. Have you made a business deal based on dishonesty and lies? I challenge you to make it right. Is there a friendship that has been severed recently in your life because of dishonesty? I challenge you to go to that person and apologize. If they don't forgive you, then they've got a problem with forgiveness. But go to that person. And tell them God's convicted you about this. And lastly, remember what I said about Jesus. What's in the heart is what comes out. If lies and deceit are what always come out, is God maybe saying to you this morning, you've never been born again? If that's the case, come forward. I want to pray with you. Maybe there's somebody here that wants to join a fellowship where you can fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ and that fellowship can be based on truth and encouraging one another. You step out and come forward and say, Pastor, I want this to be my church home. Lord Jesus, may our words reflect the change that you've made in us. And may it be for your honor and your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.